at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. Today I have a great pleasure to have with me Dr. Nikki Woods, uh, who is the director of the Institute for Education Research at University Health Network and a scientist and associate director of operations at the Wilson Center University of Toronto. Welcome Nikki, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation, Sarah, I'm excited. Great. So this is going to be just an informal conversation. And I just want to start with something that I heard from you. Uh, I think you, you gave an, uh, an interview some time ago. And what sparked my curiosity was that you said that you kind of didn't like science when you were growing up and you ended up being a scientist. I was just curious, how did it go? Like, how did you end up not liking science and then becoming a scientist? What's the story behind Yeah, it's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot lately of kind of how did I get here? And um, I've come to the conclusion that it's so unbelievably serendipitous that I'm not sure I'm even supposed to be here in a lot of different ways. And as a child, even into high school, I did not like science. Didn't. I, I adamantly refused past the time where you were forced to take science classes. I just decided not to take any of them. I didn't like it. Um, and that continued into um, the start of my university career. I went in as a social science student. Actually, I went in as a commerce student and then switched um, to social science uh, just as I was starting to get a little bit more interested in, in psychology. And I think when it boils down to it, and I've said this before, my, my thinking around science changed. And that's what allowed me to like it. I think my understanding of science previously when I was younger, and really this is how we tend to frame science for young kids. It's all about kind of the natural sciences and it's the biology and it's the chemistry and it's the microscopes and it's maybe zoology. And although I think those things have value and are certainly interesting, they weren't the types of topics that would grab me. Um, it wasn't the type of experience that said, I wanna know more about this. Um, no matter how you know, hard my high school teachers would have tried or my elementary school teachers would have tried to engage me. It's just not my thing. Um, and so by the time I entered university, yes, I wanted to learn more. And I saw this as my opportunity to kind of expand my thinking. And I took that opportunity and I found psychology. And the psych program, I went to McMaster for undergrad and the psych program there is not clinically focused. So it's not clinical psychology, um, but that was what I entered thinking I was getting was clinical psychology. But what I got was very heavy experimental psychology, behavioral psychology, um, you know, animal behavior, all these other things. And that I found fascinating. I found human cognition fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's just that that would not have included, it, it, in my experience, most of the social sciences would not have, would not have been considered science to me. Mm -hmm. They were something else. And so I think that's what led me to think incorrectly that I don't like science. Turns out, I love it. Yeah. Just, I had no clue what it was at the time. So was it a particular moment or a person who talked to you about it that you got intrigued or did you went to a class or what was that? Yeah, I think it was, 
a combination of a bunch of different things. I think it was certainly my classes um, and a variety of different instructors that I just enjoyed. I enjoyed the way these people think, and I still do. I still found that department to be a very um, inspiring place to learn. And there were many different, I, I couldn't even name them, but there are many different instructors there that just inspired my thinking and I appreciated them. And what they taught me, even in those just first few years of undergrad, was really what it means to be a scientist, which isn't necessarily about the topic, it's about your approach, right? And that's what I had missed beforehand. And what I appreciated about all of those faculty who spent time with me in those first couple of years of undergrad was their ability to push me to ask more why questions. And just, in, especially in psychology, you're asking whys about very basic things things that people assume to be true all the time, just in everyday human perception, everyday human attention and, and memory, all the things that we take for granted. Psychologists take the time to ask, but why did that happen? And that's what's fun for me. Um, and that's what I hadn't been doing in my high school bio class or in my high school genetics class. Or right? Like it just wasn't the same type of approach. So it's interesting that you talk about approach and, and I didn't learn it either until I was in graduate school. I thought I just have to pick a topic and I just go deep and that's what you do. And then you come to graduate school and you go, okay, this is about how you think and how you structure things. But then the message doesn't get until then. So when you get a students to, that you're going to supervise or you're going to mentor or people who come to you to ask about it, What's your, your, actually your approach to let them know, like, maybe you need to know this before you get in? Yeah, you know what, it's, it's funny, because sometimes I talk to people who are interested in graduate work, and I've done this multiple times, I've dissuaded people from going into graduate school. And the reason I've dissuaded some people is because I think that they're not understanding what it really means to engage in science at this level. I think that they sometimes come forward, they come to my office, they come to my lab with a topic. And I think that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if your focus is on a specific topic, you are gonna be a very miserable human be being approximately 10, year, 10 months into your graduate degree, right? It's gonna feel like 10 years um, because the topic is not important, right? If it's, the topic is only gonna last, interest in one topic can only last so long. You have to have something else that's really driving you to want to engage in this work. And if you can't tell yourself that you have a real reason for wanting to do this, it's not gonna be sustainable. Mm -hmm. So when I have graduate students come to me or potential graduate students, I spend a lot of time kind of asking them what's their why? Why do they wanna do this? What do they find interesting about this? And if it sounds really, really topic focused, I'll often suggest maybe my lab isn't the best place for them, but also maybe graduate work isn't the best thing, right? If you're just interested in the topic, you can read. Like that's not gonna really, um, you don't have to do a PhD because you like the topic. That's not really the reason. And so I'm really big on people asking themselves why they're doing something and aligning their decisions with that why. And maybe that's a graduate degree and maybe it's not. Um, and for me, when I started graduate school, it didn't dawn on me that you would need a specific topic. So yes, you would study something, but you'll figure that out. Um, and what I appreciated about my program and my supervisors at the time was we didn't have conversations about topics. We had conversations about questions. We had conversations about experiments. We had conversations about all sorts of things, but it was never pick a topic and do it. 
and this is what you're going to be known for. That wasn't the kind of conversation we had in, in my um, graduate degree, and I appreciate that experience now more than I probably even did then. Well, that's fascinating. Maybe I can pick on that to ask you about, after that, how did you end up in medical education? I thought like you're a psychologist, obvious place to go into getting a psychologist job. What happens there? It's very true. You know, the natural progression for me would have been psychology and could have been psychology. And I think actually, if I had ended up in a psychology department, I would have been a very happy person. But one of the things I appreciated about medical education was the opportunity to combine two things that I really love. So again, I love to ask why questions. I love to design a really cool experiment to just kind of see what happens. But it's also important to me if I'm going to spend the rest of my life studying a topic or answering some questions, I want to know that those questions have meaning for someone outside of my lab and someone outside of my world. And so what I find with medical education is it lets me do all of those experiments I want to do, have all those really fun theoretical conversations, but I also know why I'm doing it because it's to enhance education. And education is something that I've always taken very seriously, always believed in the power of education. And I appreciate that this field gives me a chance to do something meaningful to advance education, not just talk to a bunch of psychologists about things that I find interesting. So I love the applied opportunities and the opportunities to apply my work. And, and that's really why I'm in this field now. How I got here though, is again, it's kind of accidental. I got here because I was in the psychology department and I happened to meet Jeff Norman. He was one of my first um, faculty, my first uh, instructors in my undergrad. I actually had him as my second year stats prof. Um, and anyone who takes stats with Jeff will tell you he's probably the most fun statistics prof you'll ever meet in your whole life. There's no such thing as a fun statistics prof unless it's Jeff Norman. He's just a fun person who helps you, again, understand why the stats matters. And he also introduced me, even though he's not a psychologist, he introduced me to ways of thinking um, that allow us to kind of apply, again, those psych psychological principles to medicine. And so had I not met him, I don't know if I would have known that medical education was a thing. Like I, I don't, in fact, I'm positive. Had I not met Jeff, I would not have known that medical education was a thing that people studied, much less something you could make an entire career out of. Um, so I'm very uh, grateful to him for that um, eye-opening experience. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it happens to all of us. Like if it is not because someone mentioned it and you go, what's that? <laughs> is there a possibility here? So you uh, describe your research program as exploring the role of basic, basic science knowledge in clinical reasoning. And I was curious about uh, what's the story behind? Like, you, did you have an experience or a situation that you went through that made you realize, oh, that's the thing that I would, would like to pursue? So, I mean, I wish I could say that I had a really deep personal connection <laughs> to this topic, but in reality, I started doing this work because I read a couple papers that made me say, hmm, I think they're thinking about this in the wrong way. Oh. And so in my undergrad, I've actually been studying this since my undergrad honors thesis, believe it or not, I'm still on oh, this wow. topic of integration of basic science. And I had started on a different topic. I was doing my thesis with Jeff Norman and Lee Brooks at McMaster. And I started on a completely different project that was in dermatology. And it was, I don't even remember where it was right now. Um, but it wasn't that interesting to me. But by fluke, I came across a couple papers um, 
one was by Hank Schmidt and another one was by Vimla Patel. And they were having this kind of back and forth debate around the role of basic science in clinical reasoning. And after reading a couple of them, I realized that they were missing the psychological argument. So even though we had people who were, gen who were psychologists, feminist psychologists, they know a lot about psychology, same with Hank Schmidt, um, but the conversation they were having was missing some of that fundamental underlying psychology. At the time, I was really interested in human memory and I felt like they weren't connecting the conversation they were having to human memory and everything we knew about human memory. And I thought that's what's missing from this conversation. They're approaching this as a problem solving problem. They're not approaching it as a human memory problem or as a categorization problem. And so that's what I set out to do was they were having this back and forth trying to decide what's the role of basic science. And I was just like, well, what is regular um, theoretical models, underlying principles? What would that do for everyday psychology? It'd probably be the same thing in medicine. And I just kind of went from there. And so I did one experiment and that turned into, that was a big flop. And I ended up doing um, more and more and more. And it was just kind of, it, it just kept going from there. Um, and so really it was just this idea of thinking that maybe they're missing something and I have a hunch and let's look into it. It's very cool because um, like they having the hunch going from there to actually doing and joining the conversation is, it takes a, a lot. And what, what was, what has been kind of the biggest challenge that you have faced in trying to do that in trying to make people see that transition and that other way of, of looking at a particular phenomenon? Yeah, I think the challenge that I had with that in the early days and still have now actually with my work is trying to bring everybody on board with thinking of things from a psychological standpoint when not everyone you're talking to is a psychologist, right? So they don't necessarily see the world the same way. They don't, they literally don't see the problem the same way. Um, they don't, we're not sharing the same language. There's kind of a, a spot where I have to figure out, okay, what what parts of this do they really need to know? What parts of the psych are really, really relevant and what parts are just exciting for Nikki? And how am I going to bridge that gap and make sure we're having a meaningful conversation? So I think that was kind of my early part was kind of doing that mapping from the psychology to the actual problem at hand. And then the other thing is trying to fit the model of the way we do work in psychology into medical education. So in a psych department, it's endless experiments, you know, just the way, you know, that psychology departments are set up, you can run experiments back to back to back all day, every day. You have endless um, uh, numbers of participants. You have an opportunity to gauge in, in really high level experimental design where you design one study, make a minor tweak, run it again, make another tweak, run it again. And that's a model that works really well in psych, but it doesn't always work well in med ed. Um, and so getting people to appreciate from a med ed standpoint, why that little tweak is important. You know, we get so stuck in med ed with big changes and big things. Um, and we're always asking really big questions and we forget sometimes the importance of a little question and a small tweak. And all of those advantages that you get from this tightly kind of programmatic research, I don't know if that always lends itself well um, to medical education. So it's kind of hard to enter a field where everyone's having really, really big conversations when you're really focused on something that's very small and very reductionist in nature, but has potential to build. So maybe the first few studies I did, you know, yeah, they're with undergraduate psychology students. 
And maybe, yeah, I, I did some work where I used artificial diseases. We literally made up diseases. And in psychology, that makes sense. In med ed, it's a really weird thing to do. So you have to kind of bridge that, that gap. And I think at the beginning, that was tough. It's fascinating that you bring that notion of the, the importance of looking at the small, smaller questions that eventually can become big. In you trying to do that and entering the field from, from outside, as most of us have done it, uh, did you lean or did you ask someone or um, how did you make your way? Were there particular people around you that helped you think through? Yeah, so I think really early in my career, I, I benefited a lot from just strong graduate supervisors and graduate mentors. So I, I worked with Jeff Norman again through my PhD, and he, of course, more than many people, appreciates the value of a really small, tightly controlled experiment. Similarly, my own um, PhD advisor from psychology, Lee Brooks, was great about appreciating that. And even when I entered my, my left the lab and, and graduated and started my own lab, um, I would still go back to Mac and talk to Lee and talk to Kevin Eva and other folks about what I was doing. Um, and so I knew that I was on the right path. I knew that if I just pushed this, I would be able to understand the role of basic science in a way that was meaningful for me. So I, I was very, very confident in that. I guess what I wasn't always confident about, especially when I first entered the field, was whether or not anyone would care. So I knew I could do this and I knew I could answer this question. And I knew I could do good work. Um, I was very confident in my education, very confident in the mentorship I had. I was just never sure anyone else would be interested. Um, and I remember once running into George Bordage at a conference and he, he told me he read my paper. And I about passed out. Like I couldn't believe <laughs> that he read. I was like, you read <laughs> And I was, I was stunned. I was truly stunned that someone had read it and was interested in it. So that was the part I wasn't sure was gonna happen. How do you build that confidence? Because one thing that I have admired you about you, even though we haven't talked too much, is that you exude this, this confidence of who you are and what you do, but yet you said you, have, you were not sure about certain things. How did you do that? You pick in those little moments and just add it on? Uh, what's your approach to that? I think that I, focus a lot on what I know well. You know, there are things, I'm, I'm, I'm one who's perfectly willing to admit, there's a bunch of things in this world I just don't get, you know? Um, but I do feel like I can learn. I feel like I am prepared to be in this field and to have these conversations. And that's what I bring with me. I feel like I enter rooms with an aura of, I'm prepared to be here. Um, and I can talk about things and I can have interesting conversations. And hopefully, you know, people will appreciate that. If they won't, that's okay. I, I won't crumble. <laughs> I'm all right. Um, but that's, I, I think I'm very confident in the things that I know I know well, right? I can, I can handle those things. Um, I can't control what other people will think about it, but I, I just tend to take solace in the things that I know I can control. And just Is it coming from, from your upbringing? Is it influenced from your family or parents? What is it? You know, it probably, I have to say probably, um, I, ha I come from, so I grew up in Toronto. I've always lived here. Um, I grew up in the north end of the city in a neighborhood called uh, Rexdale. It's a very um, diverse community. It's a lot of uh, Caribbean people, mostly Caribbean, African, um, India, uh, South Asian, a bunch of different communities in one place. 
And I think we learn from that neighborhood, uh, particularly in Toronto, you learn from that neighborhood to have a strong sense of self. Okay. You learn to be able to stand up for yourself. You learn to be able to live in spaces where you don't always belong. You're not always going to be in Rexdale. At some point, you have to be somewhere else. And you have every right to take up as much space in that other neighborhood as you do when you're in Rexdale. You have to learn to do that or else, you know, this is not going to be an environment where you're going to thrive. So I think my neighborhood and my general community, so my parents, but more so my community have helped me develop this. I'm very much a child of my community. Absolutely. Um, it is a very vibrant Caribbean uh, uh, neighborhood and my parents are Trinidadian. Trinidadians, we're not shrinking violets. Like we're not the type <laughs> to cower in a corner. <laughs> you have something to say, you say it, you say it loudly and then you keep moving. That's just kind of how we generally behave. So I, I think you're right. Now that I'm thinking about it now, I think there's been even more influence on my environment than I sometimes give them credit for it. And how does it translate into your lab? Because I, I have to say, one of the papers that I have enjoyed a lot is the one that you did with Maria Milopoulos, having our cake and eating it too. It's like it was a joint paper. And then the two of you partnered to start a lab. So it sounds to me that the world community is big on you. And then you also got a, a mentor award that was for a group of people doing mentorship. Like, how does it translate for you? And, and what, where does that passion to establish communities come from? Yeah, you know what? It, it's so true. The community for me is, is everything. So the paper that you're, that you're talking about, they're having your cake and eating it too. That was the first paper Maria and I did together. So we just kind of were both at the Wilson Center doing our own kind of thing and then realized that we had this overlapping interest in um, expert development. Actually, Glenn Regeer helped us realize we had this overlapping interest. And at some point, we decided, you know what, we're just going to work on these things together. We're going to actually make an effort to build a formal collaboration. Again, this is very, we, we tease each other that we're like the psychologists, Kahneman and Tversky, and we're like, we're like those two. We're just going to, we're going to do this together. And that was an important moment for me in my career, making that decision that we were going to do this together as a lab to run a joint lab. And I think that it has allowed us to do work together that we would have never been able to do separately. But the lab itself has built a little mini community for us. We are each other's support system. Um, our graduate students, we support them. They support us. We bounce ideas off of each other. But I also think the same spirit I, I brought from my own community at home, I bring into the lab. Like we are a fun lab where everybody is allowed to have confidence in what they know well. And if what you know well is podcast, and that's what we're talking about today. If what you know well is, you know, trashy TV, great. That's what we're talking about today. <laughs> and we allow everybody in our lab to just bring themselves. That's all you have to bring to the table. Bring, bring yourself whatever you have to offer and we'll have a good time. And we try to build that sense of a team and a community in our lab, as well as within the Wilson Center, but certainly within our own, our, our own lab. Mm -hmm. And it, I find that that's fascinating because it's not easy to do right especially in a, in a field or not just medical education, in academia, you kind of work as islands. So being able to group and be together and be successful on that is, is a very good thing to, to hear from. In addition to that, which I, I can sense from your passion that is very important to you, what has been another maybe unexpected but gratifying moment in your career besides that sense of community? 
I think probably the most, and I've had a few moments where I've just been absolutely beaming. And it, it's, still, it's still gonna be part of my community response, but it's a, it's a slight difference. Um, my very first graduate student, Marian Baghdadi, spent about five years with us in Toronto. Um, she was from Kuwait and she came to Toronto to do a master's and a PhD in um, oral radiology. And Miriam and I, I always say this, we kind of grew up together academically because we, we both started in the field. Yes, she was coming in as a master's. I was starting in as a junior faculty and we had to kind of grow together. And one moment that I will absolutely never forget is watching her prep for her PhD defense. And she got up there and I was just blown away. Now keep in mind, I have worked with this woman for five years. I have, I have seen her do so many amazing things. But in that moment, watching her pull everything together, everything she'd done in five years into this beautiful story was an absolutely amazing moment for me. Absolutely amazing. Until then, I'd always thought, you know, Miriam's a colleague, we're having a great time together, but I hadn't thought of myself as a supervisor and a mentor, but watching her do this amazing thing for me was incredibly eye-opening to my role in this field. So it was that moment where I wasn't just doing good work and doing cool experiences, but I was also setting up an opportunity for somebody else to do this amazing work. And, you know, setting up an opportunity for other people to build and grow professionally and also scientifically, that was amazing to me. And even though we'd been working together the whole time, it was just in that moment, seeing her do it, that I was just shocked. <laughs> I was shocked. That was one of, definitely one of the best moments of my entire career. Oh, that's awesome. That's what, that's, I think, is the, the most gratifying parts of being a scientist, for sure. Yeah. So now you are at a stage where you're very successful as a scientist. You're, you're very successful as a leader. You, you have in these leadership positions as well. So you have kind of accumulated amount of experiences, both scientifically and personally and leadership. Um, what have you learned about yourself in the time that you've been doing all this so far? Probably one of the lessons that I'm only, you know, recently coming coming to mind, right? I don't think I, it took me a long time to get here, was to realize that even though in many ways I don't fit here, if that makes sense. So I think my own story, there's nothing in my background that tells me I should be a scientist. Not only did I not like science, I didn't know what science was. I never met a scientist. I don't come from an academic background. You know, I don't come from an academic family. My dad is a, a, a accountant, my mom worked as a, a grocery store clerk, and then as a PSW, I don't come from this world. And so I think what I've learned throughout all this time, 15 years, finally, I have come to the realization that I might not fit here, but I belong here. And that took a very long time to realize. And I don't ever have to fit in, and I probably never will, and it really doesn't matter. I can do, I can still belong here entirely being myself. I can have leadership roles. I can continue to do my work. I've never been somebody who is a 
a terribly um, strategic planner when you think of like my own academic career. I didn't come into the field and say, I'm going to plan a pathway to myself and make sure that I become a director and I'm going to work with these people because, you know, they're the ones who are getting in. That's just not me. That's just absolutely not me. It's not the way I approach my life and it's not the way I approach my work. And that's another learning that I finally realized about myself only recently that I'm not one of those people. I didn't realize other people were doing that. Um, <laughs> but I've also learned that that's okay, right? Like I've learned that there is a way to be a leader and a way to be a scientist and a way to be a mentor that is still true to myself. And I've come to that just by happenstance because it's just the way I've kind of done it. But I'm now coming to appreciate um, my ability to do that and see it as a strength. Um, as opposed to being concerned that maybe I should be doing things differently. So do you think is, because sometimes um, I get the sense that people think that those aha moments come like one day you wake up, oh, I got it. Now I understand. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that it's just a, a progression of realizing and reflecting? Yeah, maybe for some people it's an aha. I mean, I think that would be a nice, efficient way to come to a realization, but it's never been for me. Like, I, I'm sure that for many people it is, but for me, it takes a lot of time. And it's a lot of kind of back and forth and questioning myself, right? So maybe today I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to lead this lab the same way I would have led a family dinner or whatever. And then maybe tomorrow I'm like, oh, is that a good idea? Maybe I should have done this. Maybe I should have done that. And the next day I'm like, no, this is it. This is family dinner. And we're just going to go forward. So I think there's a back and forth. And eventually you become more comfortable and um, just confident with your own decisions. But for me, I've, I've never had kind of an aha, this right. is the right way to go kind of moment. I've, I've, I'm the master of kind of second guessing. I'll move forward, but it doesn't mean <laughs> that I'm not, I, that I'm not, you know, I'm sure there's been many times where I'm like, eh, I, I love that you shared that with us because it's kind of that perception that you got, you have to go on a linear path, but really it doesn't have to be that way. So I it appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. You never know what, what pathway you're going to end up on, right? So I know a lot of people want, and this is back to the, even the graduate school, when the students come in with the topic, sometimes they come in with a whole bunch of, a whole series of studies plan. I'm going to do this and then this and then this. I'm like, how do you know? Like you have no idea what you're going to do. I mean, it's nice. It's nice to have plans. It's good to have goals, but you know, who knows? Yeah. It's going to take you. Thank you for sharing that. I have a couple more questions before we close. And what is the usual one that I ask people? Like, what's your next curiosity? What are you up to? You know, I, again, I wish I had a really exciting answer to that. The challenge with my work is I don't think I'm done with my last curiosity. So I've been, people ask a lot, how is it that I managed to continuously study this one topic, this integration of basic science? And it's because I'm not done with it yet. I still don't think I understand it. And there's so much more I want to do. And so just on my basic science work, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how we even define a basic science. What is it? Um, maybe we've been wrong about that this whole time too. Um, so I'm really pushing kind of that angle, but I'm also really interested in broadening my exploration around just expert development, right? So again, I really like focusing on this one piece, which is basic science, but in my work with Maria, what I love about our collaboration is that it allows me to also think a little bit broader by pushing it into just kind of general expert development. So I'm, I'm learning, we have kind of a back and forth 
mixed methods model where we kind of do a, a study in the lab and a study in the real world, a study in the lab and a study in the real world. And so we're playing with that and I'm enjoying it more and more. It's allowing me to ask slightly bigger questions and always run right back to the lab when I need to. And it's a great collaboration and I'm enjoying it a lot. So I think there's gonna be a lot more of that to come. Um, and I think the other piece is bringing to fruition what I always said I loved about this work, which was the application and is spending more time thinking about, okay, how are we gonna change education now that we know all of what we know about basic science, about adaptive expertise, how are we gonna change education? And so that's always my next thinking is, is what are we gonna do next? What are we gonna do differently in the, in the curriculum? What are we gonna do differently in the classroom because of what we learned in the lab? So those are kind of the things that are always on my mind and I'm always curious about. They're not entirely new, but they're still important and they're still interesting to me. Yeah, you're keeping them as kind of your reference point to keep moving forward, which is extremely yeah. important. Yeah, very yeah. good. And my final point is like, you have shared very kindly and I appreciate that some of your experiences you have bringing things that people might not know. Is there something in particular that you think most people don't know about you that make you the scientist that you are now? Um, I think what most people, I'm gonna link two parts of my life that people probably A, don't know I have, but also wouldn't think of as early. So the students in my lab and all my colleagues at the Wilson Center know that I absolutely love trashy TV, just ah. garbage TV, like the big, like reality TV, like think of the crappiest show you can think of on TLC and it's probably my favorite show in the world. <laughs> and I, I love it. And the reason I think people don't know it is because I think often people think I take myself incredibly seriously. I absolutely do not. Like I really, <laughs> really don't. I, I live for just fun and relaxation and enjoyment. And I take very few things in my life or in this world seriously, because it is what it is, right? That's kind of my, my approach to life. And I think it goes into my science. I, I think it's important to do great work. And I love doing cool experiments and having fun in the lab. Um, but it doesn't define me. It's just kind of what we do for the day. And it's the same thing with my TV choices. I have no problem admitting the trash I watch on TV because I don't think it defines me. It's just what I like to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think people are surprised by that. I think people tend to think I'm really serious, but I'm really just a ball who loves trash on TV. <laughs> That's what I do most days. Well, I have to confess that one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you in, in this uh, podcast is because I saw you in, in interviews that I, I saw online and I was thinking like, yeah, people, I had the same impression that you were very serious, focused person and then you made me laugh in those interviews. I thought, how great to have you here. But really appreciate you coming here, uh, Nikki. Really enjoy the conversation today. Thank you for inviting me, Sarah. And thank you everyone for listening and we will see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.